it, it's a, if you've seen this before, um, I just feel badly. I just want you to know that not everything has been updated because it's not everything that's new, but there's new information, okay? So these are my disclosures. I um, hope you don't find anything I say biased. And these are the learning objectives um, for today's discussion. Um, at the end of this, I hope that we all can describe and give the definition of small fiber neuropathy, uh, describe approaches to making the diagnosis of small fiber polyneuropathy, um, explain the range of medical conditions that are associated with small fiber polyneuropathy, and list current and emerging treatments of small fiber polyneuropathy. How many of you here right now were at the discussion yesterday with Dr. Claw? Um, so there are, uh, there's again, just disclosure, there are some slides that were shown there for the purpose of my presentation that you'll see again. Um, and um, um, I just wanted to disclose that too because I am fully disclosing whatever I do because I just, you know, that's what I do. So um, um, I got a, I got a email from somebody last week about this slide. I had used this, I've used this slide before in various ways. I'll come back to this slide in just a second. So um, I, somebody who, who, who criticized me, liked my presentation on neuropathic pain, but criticized me because, um, this, because this rat committed suicide. Um, I swear to you, I can show you the email. I think I deleted it, though. But uh, uh, this person said, I love your presentation, but your use of a rat committing suicide shows your insensitivity towards mental health concerns. So if you're in this audience, I'm happy to talk to you about it. I mean no uh, such disrespect. Um, but the point I'm trying to illustrate here is that um, this is a rat that's been involved in an antidepressant trial. The scientists have come by to see the results. Unfortunately, this rat has hanged itself. And the blurb that's on this cartoon is discouraging data on the antidepressants. And what I've put in after that, as well as other treatments. So one of the um, things that I think we should recognize, how many people here are confident that 100% um, of your patients will have 100% pain relief because you know what to do all the time? 50%, right? I mean, so I'm just throwing this out there because I think that there are uh, there's a need to recognize the fact that many people do not find um, significant enough for them relief from their pain and the impairments on their function that that results in. And they, it's not hopefully, hopefully, certainly not hopefully quite as bad as um, what the rat did to itself. Um, but the concern is that, and the, the, the purpose of, throwing, of, of showing you this now, is that perhaps one of the reasons why we don't always do as well as we can for someone inadvertently is we don't have as complete an understanding of the diagnosis or diagnoses that explain what underlies that person's pain. So uh, just as, a, as an aside, having nothing to do with small fiber neuropathy, very early in my career, I was asked, my sister-in-law asked me to see her best friend's father, who had a 20-year history of cluster headache getting worse and worse and worse. And he had to quit his job as an engineer. Nothing helped him. He went to a neurologist um, who, his office is on Park Avenue. He's a professor at Cornell. He said, you have classic cluster headache. You don't need an MRI. This is what you have. Um, for his cluster headache and his facial pain symptoms, he developed lid lag, so he had a tarsorophy because it was persistent. He had jaw pain, so he had TMJ surgery. That he had, but not an MRI. And on my first visit with him, I said, you know, maybe we need to reconsider some other diagnoses. Uh, you, you have a little bit of a Horner syndrome. You know, um, um, I'm a little concerned. You're a little asymmetric. Um, and he said, no, I'm not going to undergo an MRI. I was told by John Schaefer at Cornell I don't need one. A week later, he calls me up and said, okay, I'll undergo one. P.S., he had a huge, huge dural-based meningioma, subtentorial meningioma. Um, and in the neurosurgical literature, the days that you would do operating, operations in an operative, in a suite, you know, where 
people were somewhat up still <laughs> um, at the Ether Dome at Mass General and other such kind of facilities. Um, when you stimulate the tentorium where this tumor was coming from, you get jaw pain, you get eye pain, you get autonomic symptoms because it's a referred event. So once that tumor was removed by the neurosurgeon, he never had pain again after his postoperative period. And that whole story was written up in Journal of Neurosurgery to publish case report and review. So that, that occurred probably 25, almost 30 years ago. And so I, 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 there have been too many instances since then when the issue in trying to help somebody was not the, well, was not the lack of treatment, but, not, but was not the specific and appropriate diagnosis. So that's why I show this. That's why I just told you that story. Um, oops, I don't know where that P went. Um, <laughs> I never noticed that. Um, got lost. In, uh, this is a slide I showed earlier today. Uh, <laughs> um, so for those of you who were not there, um, um, trying to make the same point um, that when that. That, that when we think of meaningful outcomes to the way we treat people, um, we have to have realistic expectations about uh, not only in, with respect to diagnosis, but also this is a pivotal study that was done examining gabapentin's role in the treatment of diabetic neuropathy. As I said earlier today, in, next to this article, I forget it was before or after, there was a similarly designed trial of uh, gabapentin for post-hepatic neuralgia. Long story short, that this study showed, concluded, that um, the use of gabapentin was associated with a greater degree, a significant reduction in pain, um, com- more significant reduction in pain compared to placebo, a statistically significant difference, and that this difference um, was also observed actually in post-traumatic neuralgia in the same study, the same similarly designed study. But when you look at this in a different way, um, in order to enter this study, you had to have this condition, diabetic neuropathy, painful diabetic neuropathy, and a pain intensity level of greater than 4 out of 10. The successfully treated patients, the majority of them, still had a mean pain intensity of 4.6 out of 10. So that would mean that the majority of patients who were successfully treated still had enough pain to be re-entered into the study. So again, you know, we, just um, uh, humbling. Uh, again, this is something that Dan Claw and I talked about yesterday. Um, just really trying to get as close as possible to the mechanism um, of of pain that you can. Um, we had a very lively discussion yesterday, Dr. Claw and I did, um, uh, and so. This presentation today that I'm giving is not meant to say that I know that everything is is wrong with small fibers. Absolutely not. What I'm reporting today is what we've learned about small fiber um, changes and what we may need to do going forward to understand. As I said yesterday, and so if you were at that presentation, I'll say again today, the, the kind of small fiber changes that I'm going to present today do not necessarily correlate, with, say that, that, the, that the small fibers themselves are where the problem is, um, and you know that, that they could be even more distal in the keratinocytes, more, more proximal to the central nervous system, but that's what we're going to talk about. And so um, when we think about widespread pain, which small fiber neuropathy can present with, there are a wide variety of conditions that can be associated with such. So osteoarthritis can cause widespread pain. PMR, polyamalgia rheumatica, can cause widespread pain. Uh, different various spondyloarthropathies, lupus, and other autoimmune conditions that I don't have listed on the left side. Multiple neurological conditions. Uh, really underrecognized is the incidence of pain in people who experience multiple sclerosis. Uh, fibromyalgia um, is a condition that can cause widespread pain. Thyroid, you know, endocrine abnormalities, diabetes. But small fiber neuropathy itself is very frequently overlooked, or at least the presence, the anatomic demonstration of an abnormal nerve fiber density, small fiber nerve, nerve fiber density within the periphery is often overlooked. Um, it doesn't, so, and, and, and so that's important to notice as well. 
peripheral neuropathy as, a, as in general, just some background about neuropathy, is experienced by almost uh, 40 million people in the United States. Many peripheral neuropathies, so for example, diabetic neuropathy, it may be a mixed neuropathy with both large fiber and small fiber involvement. But, and I'll go into this in a little bit more detail, increasingly recognized is the demonstration of more specific involvement of small myelinated and unmyelinated fibers. So that is the small fiber polyneuropathies or neuropathies. So um, this is a slide that I borrowed from my colleague who's in the audience, um, Dr. Brett Stacy, because it's a wonderful slide. Um, and so I want to give him credit. And uh, this is, a, I didn't borrow the definition, he didn't, he didn't create the definition, but it's but neuro, just looking about what neuropathic pain is. Pain is, um, is, is, neuropathic pain is pain that arises from a direct consequence of diseases affecting the somatosensory system. And the way this the publication now almost eight years ago uh, was, uh, was a outcome of work done by Dr. Treed, who is a, a, a German scientist and colleagues, um, and, uh, and uh, published in neurology in 2008. And at the end of the evaluation, um, you can grade it as definite, probable, or possible. But Dr. Stacy put it a different way. Um, he basically said that in plain English, neuropathic pain is pain from the nerve, spinal cord, or brain, not originating directly from the bones, muscles, or organs. But having said that, keep in mind that bones, muscles, and organs also, visceral organs also have sensory innervation, which can contribute. So um, these are common neuropathic pain states as well. And the one that I put an asterisk next to are those for which there are specific FDA approvals. And we're going to talk about small fiber, small fiber polyneuropathies more directly. Okay, so small fiber neuropathies result from damage to peripheral nerves either in the A-delta, which are small myelinated fibers, or the myelinated, uh, unmyelinated C-fibers. These fibers affect both small somatic as well as autonomic fibers. Now, if you, if, um, are there any neurologists in the audience besides me? One. Okay, so if you looked at, uh, uh, oh, hi. Uh, so if you, um, um, if you looked at the way, neurologists love to establish um, practice standards or papers that point to guidelines about how to make a diagnosis. And the consensus panel on small fiber neuropathy really concentrated on distal burning symptoms. And that's great. And colleagues, uh, Chris Gibbons is a colleague who um, I, we are publishing a patient handbook uh, for people who have small fiber neuropathy. Um, and Chris is a professor at Harvard who is one of the contributors. Um, and he studies mostly that kind of small fiber neuropathy. But as we did this book together with some other, science, other neurologists, we all started to recognize that that definition that has been uh, published in neurology doesn't really adequately explain some of the other roles that small fibers have in the body, including their role in, other, uh, in somatic settings as well as the, auto, the autonomic um, functions. Now, thermal perception and nociception are clearly subserved by small fibers. We learned that in whatever professional school you went to, that you know, that's what these fibers do. But enteric function is also subserved by small fibers. Um, and so GI motility, um, uh, urodynamic kind of issues, um, and other um, kind of other areas that you wouldn't think of typically. So when I give you some patient examples, people I've seen, taken care of, and made this diagnosis in, it would be kind of interesting. Now, large fibers are heavily myelinated, and they're involved in muscle control as well as touch, vibration, and position sense. So um, interestingly, how many of you have ever stubbed your toe or slammed your fingers in a car door, right? And yet, right, daily. Okay, so let me ask you. So um, since you, no, no, she has the most experience in the room, apparently. <laughs> so, but, but, but besides maybe shouting some explicatives or, you know, um, you, sh you do some, you shake, you know, if you rub it. And what happens when you rub it? Right, Why? What, what are you doing? What, what are you, I mean, pain and temp, pain, the pain fiber has been activated, right? 
What are you, what are you actually doing when you rub it? But what are you doing? Anybody know? You're activating touch fibers. Well, touch fibers get to the brain before the pain fibers do. They're faster and you're modulating. You're naturally using neuromodulation. Now, what happens in someone who has, um, um, let's say, um, di- you know, you know, diabetic neuropathy, really painful diabetic neuropathy, and they can't even have bed sheets put on their feet? What happens when you touch that area? It hurts. So now, touch actually activates pain. And that, just in other neuropathic states, sorry for digressing, shows how things get abnormally rewired. Now, so, so at the central level, t- touch now, instead of inhibiting circuitry, as a result of the neuropathic process, now actually turns on pain fibers to show you, again, how abnormal things can become. So that's a big difference. Now, most small fiber neuropathies occur in a length-dependent fashion. So that's where some of the neurology literature has been for many years. Um, so first stocking distribution changes and then la- later glove distribution. But I would say, with, in my experience, but I haven't published you know, a thousand consecutive people yet, so rarely non-length-dependent small fiber neuropathy can result in symptoms that first involve the face, the trunk, the proximal limbs, or other more localized areas like the pelvis, abdomen. We've seen a lot of different things. What, uh, it's exciting to recognize this can happen, but the pathogenesis of injury to small fibers is not well understood. So to um, address some of the discussion and, and that was held here yesterday, not necessarily, it may have been in this room, uh, with Dan Claw, Dr. Claw, um, we don't know, for example, and we still don't know, if the, small, if the fibers being involved, the small fibers being involved, represent a direct process, a direct hit. Is it more distal? Because your keratinocytes um, can play a role in more proximal nerve fibers. Or is it a bottom-down? Is there a centralization, a centralized process that is interfering, is changing things more peripherally. We don't know the answer to that. Um, but we do know um, that small fibers are involved in some level in the process that results in the small fiber neuropathy. In one study, uh, one important study, um, but only one study, measured the impact specifically of small fiber polyneuropathy on quality of life. 265 patients were enrolled, a variety of um, tools were used, the SFN, um, SIQ is one that's used all the time, the VAS, um, the 36 items, short form health survey was evaluated, and short, and the small fiber patients demonstrated a marked overall reduction in the quality of life. Um, and also physical and mental health related measures were also uh, affected as well. So what are some of the disorders associated with small fiber neuropathy? Diabetes, glucose intolerance, the first two on, that you see there are the two most common. Uh, metabolic syndrome some, some, uh, you know, uh, is also important to recognize. Sarcoidosis, uh, we see people, I've seen many people in my practice with sarcoidosis and small fiber neuropathy. Uh, thyroid dysfunction, HIV, vitamin B12 deficiency, B1 deficiency. Chemotherapy, there's so many different chemotherapeutic drugs that can be associated with small fiber neuropathy. Uh, various antiviral agents, celiac disease. Now, um, celiac disease is an interesting pro- pro- problem because um, in my, in my um, institution, our gastroenterologists won't make the diagnosis of, of, of celiac disease or gluco- gluten intolerance unless there's biopsy proven. Um, so they're very strict about whatever diagnostic criteria. However, we've had some mildly abnormal labs without a biopsy proof in people who are, have shown glucose, glu, gluten, not glucose, gluten intolerance, and the, a, a group at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital um, uh, um, published in Muscle and Nerve recently that out of uh, 190 people in their database with celiac uh, disease, um, 70, about 70 of them had small fiber neuropathy. It, it wasn't a small number. So that's just something that we've picked up. Sjogren's syndrome, I take care of people with Sjogren's syndrome who have small fiber neuropathy. It can occur as a perineoplastic syndrome, paraproteinemia, 
rheumatoid arthritis, um, it's idiopathic and up to 50%. Oh, there's more. Um, Guillain-Barre or the chronic form. I did did that for effect. Uh, uh, CIDP. You know, it's late in the day. Got to keep us moving, right? Um, Restless leg syndrome. I can't tell you how many people we've evaluated. They presented to me with restless leg and they're being treated with dopamine agonists and I mean, that's, you know, they're being treated, they're, maybe they're partially responsive, but they have ultimately been shown, to, uh, the majority, if not most, uh, small fiber neuropathic changes. We'll get to that to, in a second to what that means. Um, hepatitis C, I mentioned lupus earlier, amyloidosis, Fabre's disease. Um, remember alpha-galactosidase deficiency? That's what Fabre's disease, they present with distal uh, pain. The only reason why I really know that is I did a fellowship at NIH in metabolic neurological diseases, so I, I, I know all that stuff. Um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. That's really is an annoying to me. Um, we made the observation in the last three months, four months. Several patients we had referred to us with severe pain and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, including um, a physician um, who had become progressively impaired with pain. Um, and um, the 67%, two out of the three, had biopsy-proven small fiber neuropathy. And so I was just about to write this up and thought I was really like, is it like, you know, it's great to recognize this and then to let other people know about it and move forward as a community to figure out what, what's going on. And an Italian group that was led by Dr. Loria, who does a lot of research in small fiber neuropathy, published in July... Um, um, I'll, show, I'll, I'll give you some details about this, uh, a paper on all this. So I, I guess I didn't get to be first there, but it's okay. Um, there are hereditary neuropathies as well, and central post-stroke pain? That's kind of crazy. So, oh, there's third. <laughs> Alcohol use, uh, vaccines, anti-TNF inhibitors, um, metronidazole, sorry, it's a typographical, linozole, no, I can't pronounce it, statins, sodium channelopathies, we'll come back to that, Parkinson's disease, Pompeii disease, Wilson's disease, ALS, Fragile X, X-link uh, adrenal leukodystrophy, and chronic renal insufficiency. So there are a lot of conditions, and I humbly put forth to you out of interest, it's really interesting, it's fascinating, I hope you think it's fascinating as well, but this is information that's just been acquired over the last five years or so, um, and so we don't know exactly how each of those conditions, why small fiber neuropathic changes occur in each of those, if there's a common reason or not. What we do know is, and I mentioned this yesterday as well, that, that there are sodium channel mutations that are relevant with respect to pain. Um, and there are genetic variants in the structure and function of sodium channels, which can either lead to loss of pain or enhance pain. And so there's an inactivating mutation in... Uh, which in, in the gene which encodes the NAV 1.7 subtype. There are, are about nine different, eight or nine different subtypes of sodium channels. Uh, they're positioned and, and uh, distributed in different ways. NAV 1.7 is a very important uh, subtype for neuropathic pain. And the inactivating mutation is associated with congenital insensitivity to pain. There's a gain-of-function mutation which may result in that same gene, though, which can result in small fiber neuropathy. There's also the trip one, trip A1 um, receptor uh, mutation and NAV1.8, NAV1.9, which also mutations in these uh, areas can also lead to, to small fiber neuropathy. Might this information be helpful to us? Hopefully. There's a whole host of sodium channel blockers that are being developed. I don't know if you're aware of that. NAV 1.7 targeted drugs and things like that, they're at mid to later stages of development, but might this be helpful? When I say that, you know, five years ago, something being discovered in our world, you know, it's not, it's not a long time for research to get done. So um, this is really kind of interesting. So just looking at what clinically happens, when somebody has a large fiber neuropathy, um, they might feel numbness, pins and needles, tingling, uh, reflexes might be affected, proprioception might be affected, um, diagnostic tests that are used um, might, be, might include, uh, less often now, a sural nerve biopsy, but EMG and nerve conduction velocity testing, commonly done, right? How many of you have ever sent somebody for an EMG and nerve conduction velocity assessment and somebody you're absolutely convinced has a problem and it's normal? 
right? Did you, you didn't test yourself after you slammed it? No, no, okay. Uh, okay, and what, how do you interpret that? How do, how do you interpret that finding? That they don't have a problem? Or the person who did the EMG is not very good at it? Or how do you interpret that? Well, certainly could be that they don't have a neuropathic problem. But the important point that I was trying to make, and I'll make it, um, is that nerve conductions don't measure anything other than large fibers. They don't measure small fibers. Large fibers generally don't, are not the ones that are causing the pain. It's the small fibers. So when you do an, e, an EMG and nerve conduction velocity assessment, or you ask for one, there are limits to what type of nerve types and fibers they're going to be addressing. Small fiber neuropathy is commonly uh, described as pain and burning, electrical shocks. There are going to be changes in thermal sensation, pinprick sensation, what's known as allodynia, pain with a stimulation that should not be painful. Um, QST, quantitative sensory testing, which most people don't use clinically. We have several machines in our group because we use, our neurosurgeon uses uh, QST for pre and post assessment of um, spinal stimulation uh, for lamin uh, and post laminectomy pain uh, patients, and we use it for other purposes. Nerve biopsy, probably not used that much, but really what's become a gold standard to confirm the pathological findings of small fiber neuropathy is diagnostic skin biopsy using intraepidermal nerve fiber density. So symptoms, the symptoms of small fiber neuropathy vary widely in severity. Um, and that's really important. That's where um, fellow neurologists, sir, um, our academy went a little bit bad because they didn't really include the variability in their guide to making a diagnosis. Um, some people feel just vague symptoms at the beginning of onset of symptoms. Other people will just, you know, will describe, you know, the abnormal, abnormality of sensation as being annoying. Like there's a sock that my, I feel like I have a, a, a rough sock on or pebbles in my, in my feet all the time or tingling all the time. Not necessarily always painful. Others will describe burning pain in the feet and extremities, sometimes severe. They'll describe allodynia, hyperesthesia, you know, sensations being more painful. Socks or bed sheets may be painful. Symptoms are often worse at night. Um, and I'm not, we're not exactly sure why, but most neuropathic pain states are, are worse at night. Now, this is really interesting. If you look at real, like, more comprehensive reviews and experiences that people have had with small fiber neuropathy, autonomic and enteric dysfunction can include, can be present and can include dry eye, dry mouth, lightheadedness with changes in posture, syncope, uh, changes in sweating, erectile dysfunction. GI symptoms such as nausea and emesis, constipation, diarrhea, changes in urinary frequency, and, and not included here, pelvic pain as well. And when you examine somebody making the diagnosis, when you try to examine somebody, while well, you do examine somebody, very important, you may find, you know, the basic neurological exam is a gross, I don't mean like disgusting, but gross assessment of the nervous system. And it's big fiber stuff. It's not subtle, small fiber stuff generally. I mean, we developed a bedside quantitative sensory tool that can address this, but it's not commonly used or available. So you might have a normal, or practically normal, basic physical and neurological exam. However, um, you might find as well decreased pinprick, changes in thermal sensation, hyperalgesia, meaning that something that's painful is more painful than usual, dry skin. You can look at the feet of people and, and, and see dryness or dryness in their skin. And that might be a sign to, to think about. Um, and a detailed history is really vital to making a diagnosis, which, um, you know, I, I, I am always amazed. How many of you have children? This is going to be relevant, I swear. Um, so is it true, I, I, when it comes to raising children, isn't it true, or no matter how busy we are, the more, when you spend time with your children, you can see the positive impact on them, right? Okay. When we spend time with our patients, you know, the more time we can spend taking a history, it really does add value to everything that we do. And so history is really vital. I guess a checklist is good. It's a good starting point. But I use any checklist approach and kind of the trust and verify, I confirm. Because you know, getting people to describe things in their own terms often is very helpful in addition to whatever checklist approach you might use. 
Um, and then other testing might be needed as well. So there are various written tools, such as the neuropathic pain symptom inventory, uh, quantitative sensory testing, which I uh, talked about, contact heat evoked potentials, um, quantitative, the QSART can be done in most EMG labs where you're looking at um, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the pseudomotor owl reflex, um, which involves autonomic uh, systems. So this is really important stuff because this, again, emphasizes that the role initially in making the diagnosis of small fire, if you want to confirm the findings, blood tests aren't going to be helpful because if someone has sarcoid or someone has Sjogren's syndrome, it doesn't mean that their symptoms are related to small fibers. So just getting the blood work alone, in my experience, doesn't help. X-ray, CT, MRI are not, and we currently are not going to help. I mentioned um, the, the limitations of nerve conductions, and this is perhaps the most important limitation. And then this is the second most, maybe these two together are like neck and neck for most important. Well, this is not as important because it's, we're looking at chronic, but this is really important. This technique has emerged as the way down and dirty in your office, in our practices to do. So skin biopsy really has become a, an accepted and widely accepted technique to evaluate the structure of small nerve fibers. Okay, that's what we're doing this for. Remember I mentioned earlier, it doesn't mean we know exactly what else in the nervous system is being affected along with these changes, but skin biopsy has been important. The standard is a three millimeter skin punch biopsy. It can be taken from anywhere in the body. If you, earlier in the week, we, I did a session with two of my basic scientist colleagues and for a fibromyalgia study that we, our, our work was on the front cover of a, of a pain journal a couple of years ago, uh, we actually studied the skin over the hypothenar eminence for other reasons. But for diagnostic purposes, when we look at um, whether or not a person has small fiber neuropathy, the standard is to use three sites in the lower extremity, so the calf, the distal thigh, and the upper thigh. There are now labs, and that's based upon being able to compare to normative data. So any lab you send this to has to have normals. And then in the upper extremity, there are certain labs that also have upper extremity normative data as well. So you, there are instances where perhaps you want to look at the upper extremity. Um, the results are expressed as the number of intraepidermal fibers per millimeter and the sensitivity and specificity, so nothing's perfect. So in other words, the, you know, the, the degree of false positive and false negative is fairly high for this technique. Um, let's go strip, I'm going to go past that. Um, so blood tests, what might you use? What blood tests might you consider for the evaluation of small fiber? Well, you're going to look at um, thyroid functions, hemoglobin A1C, fasting blood sugar. You might look at a blood count, a hepatic profile, vitamin B1 and B12 levels. From an infectious evaluation point of view, you might look at CRP, HIV, Lyme, um, hepatitis B and C viruses. The whole, you can see here autoimmune panel, uh, SED rate, ANA, uh, various other autoimmune um, uh, uh, tests. This is for celiac disease. Um, this is for sarcoid. Sometimes we do chest x-rays. Um, there are tumor markers for perineoplastic screening as well that can be used. Uh, there are you can, if you suspect a neurotoxin as a, as a source, you can do urine and blood toxicology. Hereditary, this is alpha-galactosidase A. This is the, the lysosomal enzyme that's abnormal in Fabry's disease. Um, this is actually um, what's involved in Crabbe's disease. Um, and here are other patterns. Um, and there is genetic testing for those sodium channel abnormalities that I talked to you about. Um, lumbar punctures, if you do all this blood work and you are still trying to, the reason at this point to trying to determine whether or not somebody has a, a disimmune or autoimmune process. And I'll come back to that point in a second. But I, we almost routinely at this point, unless we have a clear diagnosis from blood tests, go on to do a diagnostic lumbar puncture. Because treatment may be a, treatment decisions may be affected by that. I'll come back to that point. So treat the treatable. If you do this work and you find that someone's hypothyroid or has diabetes or is vitamin B12 deficient or has um, maybe a celiac disease or other or you picked up on their their inflammatory condition, treat the treatable if you can. If 
an underlying cause of small fiber neuropathy can be determined, that is going to help. Unfortunately, at this time, as, as, as we make these very important discoveries and observations, there are still few studies and really no guidelines which have specifically assessed the pharmacologic treatment. So one of my colleagues the other day said, well, you basically just use the same medicines that you would use for other. That's what we do now, but that's not enough. And that's kind of sloppy in the long run. So we do have to have specific trials. Um, I'm happy to say that um, there's increasing interest in various sources on specifically looking at what more can be done for people with small fiber neuropathy. Um, in a small study, gabapentin and tramadol were both found to be effective for small fiber neuropathy, but it was not a really large or meaningful study. Um, this is a, a chart that you've seen before, I'm sure, in multiple areas. This is a general set of recommendations for neuropathic pain in general, but not specifically uh, for small fiber neuropathy. I would hope in a year or two or three or four, in some setting here, hopefully, we'd be able to show you an update on small fiber neuropathy and more specific treatments for small fiber neuropathy. So, um, is getting back to the importance of why you might want to know if a person has an auto or disimmune kind of process. Well, in several case series or reports, it seems that in sarcoidosis and in a number of other settings, that intravenous gamma globulin, yes, I know it's an expensive treatment. Just hear me out for a second. Um, in several reports, um, patients have been treated with IVIG and have been dramatically improved. So um, it's not a, a horribly unsafe treatment to give. You can do it very carefully, but it's not a treatment that everyone tolerates very well. Um, and so there are renal issues, headache issues, meningi aseptic meningitis, other, can, other side effects that may make it difficult to use. But most people tolerate this well. Here's a report of three people with sarcoidosis and small fiber neuropathy who experienced severe pain as well as dysautonomia. Each patient had biopsy-proven small fiber neuropathy. They were trialed on conventional analgesics first. So I don't ever use IVIG or consider IVIG unless people have had traditional approaches to managing their pain. But these people in this um, uh, uh, publication did not have a good response. They received uh, IVIG. The dose was 2 grams per kilogram, followed by 1 kilogram, um, gram per kilogram at regular intervals, and their pain and autonomic symptoms um, resolved. Um, there's very limited uh, data. There's an, another report of um, uh, use in Sjogren's syndrome. Now, I take care of somebody, a couple of people with Sjogren's syndrome, and um, uh, small fiber neuropathy. So you think, I've used it. I've never used it in Sjogren's syndrome because these people have been controlled pharmacologically or non-pharmacologically, and there's no need to do it. Um, it uh, Anne Louise Oaklander, a mass general, has treated a juvenile onset widespread pain associated with small fiber neuropathy in 15 patients, and 62% of those demonstrated significant improvement. And in another study, 46 patients uh, with small fiber neuropathy associated with, with associated dysautonomia which treated with one or more IVIG treatments. And for patients with significant pain intensity levels above three um, or with significant dysautonomia, the treatment was very helpful. So what about small fiber neuropathy and, and, and fibromyalgia? Remember, fibromyalgia is one of the causes of chronic widespread pain. So now there are at least several, uh, and I presented this at, at a earlier presentation as well in a different context, but small fiber neuropathy changes have been associated in a lot of different um, uh, conditions. Uh, in I'm sorry, in several studies. So approximately 50% of patients who have been diagnosed with fibromyalgia in at least three published studies have demonstrated findings consistent with small fiber neuropathy on diagnostic skin biopsies. So I'm going to throw out a rhetorical question. What does that mean? And what does that mean about interpreting fibromyalgia studies that have already been published? Yesterday, someone brought up a study by Gilron, who's a, who, who is a, a champion of, uh, he developed, he's a Canadian researcher, actually he spent time at NIH as well, um, and he's a really, really amazing science, clinical scientist. And um, he really published the first, we all talk about rational pharma, uh, polypharmacy, you know that term? 
Well, he put it into action and showed over 11, about 11 years ago now um, in a publication that combining morphine and gabapentin together um, um, were more effective in treating neuropathic pain than using either alone. That was a New England Journal publication. Since then, he's done many combination studies. And, uh, uh, oh, yeah, Dan Claw mentioned that study um, that I'm about to bring up that was just published in the journal Pain, in which he combined uh, pregabalin and duloxetine in people with fibromyalgia. And I mentioned, if you were here yesterday during that, that I reviewed that study. I don't know if you did do, Brett, but uh, um, I, I, I did. And my criticism, now that it's published, and the editor didn't care, <laughs> um, was how do we know these people had fibromyalgia? How do we know? We know now that we know this, how, and, and this study was done 10 years ago, eight, five years ago, when they start, first started doing it. I mean, the, the methodology was amazing. I mean, there was no issue about how they designed the study. And it's a, in, in his studies, everyone gets every combination of placebo, placebo, and every, you know, it's elegantly done. He's got a great way of doing this. He, he works in Canada. But how do we even know who he was studying? But I was overridden. Oh, well, I tried. Um, but these are the, these, this is one study that, that is Anne Louise Oaklander's study um, that showed that 27 patients with fibromyalgia who satisfied the ACR criteria for, that, for such, 41% of, of their skin biopsies were associated with, with, with um, uh, small fiber changes. This is a study from Germany. Uh, Claudia Summers is not listed here. Is the lead, she's a neurologist who specializes in this area. Uh, long story short, the skin biopsy uh, results were more likely to be associated with small fiber neuropathy in the fibromyalgia patients. This is a study of 56 patients, 61% of whom they were diagnosed with fibromyalgia, 61% of whom um, had findings consistent with small fiber neuropathy. And I'm just going to close out with a couple of patients. Um, this is a 67-year-old male with Sjogren's syndrome who I've taken care of now for years, who has biopsy-proven small fiber neuropathy. He had a basically normal exam when I first met him of burning pain. Um, biopsy proved it. He's on a stable dose of tramadol and has been doing fine. 100 milligrams of extended-release tramadol a day, and that's all he needs. This was a fascinating patient who um, presented with right upper quadrant, persistent right upper quadrant pain after her, she had a gallbladder removed. Um, I assessed her for thoracic radicular issues, everything you could think of. Uh, her gallbladder, by the way, pathologically was normal. And on, on a scientific, I, I, just trying to understand her com, complete um, uh, her problem, because she was really troubled by this, and knowing that sometimes small fiber neuropathy can present in an asymmetric way, in a localized way, we did skin punch biopsies, which demonstrated reduced INF in density, which is small fiber, um, reduced small fiber densities, and she was diagnosed. Uh, this was a typical, this happens in my practice weekly. Somebody with a previously diagnosed history of fibromyalgia winds up being shown to have findings consistent with small fiber neuropathy. This is a 29-year-old female with multiple surgical procedures. Um, who, uh, for endometriosis, none of which were successful, continued to have chronic pelvic pain, had more widespread complaints as time went on. She was referred to me for pain management. We explored other etiologies to her chronic pelvic pain and widespread pain, and she had biopsy proven. At this point, we must have found 10 to 12 people with chronic pelvic pain, comorbidities like irritable bowel syndrome as well, who have small fiber neuropathy. One, one second, let me just, I'll finish. Uh, this is the paper that you may have, uh, this is a paper that, um, oh, this is kind of cool. This is, we talked about, I, I, I haven't shared this with you. So, so on a whim, about a couple of years ago, and I guess, you know, those of us, or those of you who are, you know, when you're, sometimes the, to move things forward, you have to think outside the box. So, in taking care of a woman who, um, was the director of the Quality Improvement Program of New York State Stroke uh, in, uh, um, entities in the, in the Department of Health of New York State. While, while she was giving a lecture to um, stroke specialists at NYU in Manhattan, she had a hemorrhagic stroke into her thalamus. And so she was in good, she had, she had good people taking care of her. Um, she subsequently developed, when she came back to Albany, where she lives, um, a post-stroke, central post-stroke kind of thalamic pain syndrome. And after failing miserably, me, me, uh, novel and not-so-novel approaches, 
I said, you know, what if there was something going on peripherally as well? Because we were seeing this in other settings. And she was the first of a series of, of, of four or five people over a very short period of time who we found had central post-stroke pain but had reduced intraepidermal neurofiber densities. These were people who never had pain before. And so that begs questions. This was, um, Dr. Cavalier is one of our residents, and this was published uh, in Pain Medicine earlier this year. So the last thing I wanted to say is, uh, the last person is, uh, uh, I mentioned the Ehlers-Danlos. That's the latest finding. And so it's fascinating. If you've ever taken care, they are, we tend, some of our colleagues tend to to discriminate when people have widespread pain and no reason for it. And this one person with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome who has small fiber neuropathy that we know now, um, 18 years old, um, had resorted to alcohol abuse um, before she even knew she had Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Why was she in so much pain? And she got treatment and she's in college and she's doing really, really well. Um, But everyone blew her off as being a a, a drug-seeking person. Um, And having a diagnosis has helped everyone around her to understand um, why she's experiencing what she's experiencing. It's made a major change for her. So in summary, um, thank you for your time and attention. Multiple medical conditions are associated with small fiber neuropathy. We don't completely understand. Um, I hope in the future, if I present this again anywhere, I'll have more information. Um, but recognizing small fiber neuropathy, thinking about what it means at different levels of the nervous system will help all of us to lead to, to a better treatment for our patients. Thanks so much. Uh, we, have time for, um, we, I, we have time for questions, and if um, people want to leave, um, that's fine too. Sir. Small fiber neuropathy is, 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 is neuropathic pain. There are neuro, published neuropathic pain guidelines, sir. And in those gui- the purpose of showing that was to tell you and others in the audience that we don't have any specific guidelines for small fiber neuropathy treatment, unfortunately, because we're really at the infancy of understanding this. But I showed you guidelines for neuropathic pain in general. And in guidelines for neuropathic pain in general like diabetic neuropathy, post-hepatic neuralgia, include opioids as second or third line. That's all. No, I understand, but that, it just suggests that this 50% of fibro patients might feasibly respond to opioids. Well, that's when, but that's when, when, when my colleague, Dr. Claw, yesterday was talking about avoiding opioids. Um, let's assume that somebody was di- is misdiagnosed with fibromyalgia but really has small fiber neuropathy, arbitrarily, you know, just punitively saying, you, we, don't, we won't give you opiates because you have fibromyalgia when they really have small fiber neuropathy uh, and they've been through other, you know, opioids might play a role in their treatment. Um, it would not be necessarily in that patient's best interest all the time. On the other hand, prolonged use of opioids can, in some people, be associated with pain, more widespread pain. So you have to look at all the factors. There, there are a variety of commercial laboratories. Um, I'm, I'm, I'll mention um, University of, Mich- of Minnesota, um, University of Rochester, Mass General, uh, Johns Hopkins. They, they actually have commercial laboratories within the universities to do these things. UCSF has one. Um, there are co- really commercial laboratories, Therapath in New York City, Corinthian Laboratories in Texas. I don't work for any of them. Um, but they'll each, um, if you put in skin biopsies and small fiber neuropathy, I'm sure these places will come up. And they will, they, they, they are, it's not an expensive procedure. And they will send you kits and they will teach you how to do it. Uh, most primary care doctors do skin biopsies. We're doing, um, we're doing, an, we're, well, we're submitting a grant uh, to assess the effectiveness of acupuncture in different chronic pain states. And one of the things we're doing is anchoring you know, uh, this in skin biopsy findings, too. So we'll see what happens. Yes? Um, I personally don't uh, diagnose fibromyalgia because I don't um, have enough medical evidence for it. 
um, I, I don't look, I don't interpret it that way. I think that um, the fact that these observations have been made means that some, that there's so many conditions and processes that may be associated with widespread pain or some of the conditions associated that, that, that would fit the criteria. The fact that there's a criteria for fibromyalgia doesn't mean that everyone who has those symptoms has fibromyalgia. There might be other explanations. And so I think it's um, incumbent upon us to do a detailed evaluation to evaluate people for more specific conditions. But I think fibromyalgia is real. Well, I, we, we, have, we have done that in all of our patients who we're seeing for the first time, Most, almost all. We've offered that to people because if we then, um, many people with fibromyalgia have not been extensively evaluated. We've found, we do all of our lumbar, I don't do the lumbar, I can do lumbar puncture, but we do them under x-ray guidance or our radiologists do it. It's a very simple procedure. Um, you know, it's, um, we've, we've picked up on... Um, uh, neurosarcoidosis in somebody, you know, uh, a GI specialist who I take care of. We picked up on his uh, CIDP that he didn't know he had, um, and and one treatment with IVIG, and he was all, all okay. So you know, it, it's little, it, it's those discoveries that make it important in my mind to be as specific as we can as possible. Sure. Yes. She presented with alcoholism as a result of her untreated. She resorted to alcohol as a result of her untreated pain, before she was diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos and then subsequently small fiber neuropathy. She received treatment for her alcohol abuse, stopped abusing alcohol, and then was able to find these diagnoses. No, 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 no. No, 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 not, absolutely not. It, it was, she recognized that she shouldn't use alcohol. She got independent treatment. I met her way after that. She was a teen, like a 14-year-old when she had the problem. No, 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 no. No, no, no. There was, there was, there was no... Ju- my, 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 point, my point was that she... Um, my interpretation of what she did was that, that she was not getting anywhere. She was miserable. She was had a, a true. She was ignored. Her her complaints were ignored. She admittedly inappropriately resorted to this and was able to s- change her behavior. And then several years later, was able to have a specific diagnosis. Sure. Well, thank you very much. I'll be happy to. I'm going to walk out and and, and talk to anybody.